Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9, that's right, Psalm 9. If you didn't hear the email or see the email that I sent or the uh, announcement last week, uh, we are deviating just for a time uh, from Exodus to turn back to the Psalms. Last year, we started a series in the summer called Summer in the Psalms. I know, very clever. Um, and we made it all the way through the first eight Psalms of the, of the book of Psalms. And, um, and so this gives us a chance to take a little bit of a break in, in Exodus. Exodus is 40 chapters long. We've been in it for, I think, 29 weeks already. And we're only at chapter 14. So let's, we get a little bit of a breath this summer, a little breath of fresh air, it seems, and, and see the Psalms. And we'll take a little bit of break. Not that we really need one, but it'd be nice. Um, but it also, taking psalms in these little bits, gives us the chance to take each psalm one by one and not all at once. And um, if my math is correct, uh, if we go through about eight psalms per year, which is what we're, Lord willing, going to do this year as well, this summer, it'll take us about 18 summers to get through the whole book of psalms. So, Lord willing, and if Christ should tarry, then uh, we will go through 18 summers, 18 years, of, uh, of in the Psalms. How does that sound? Sounds like a worthy task, right? <laughs> a worthy task. Some of you are not as excited as I am <laughs> about that, but that's okay. But since we're starting fresh in, in the Psalms, kind of jumping right back into it, let me introduce uh, the book of Psalms that I think would be very helpful for us. The Psalms are songs. That's what Psalms means. It means, it means songs, and these songs are poetry, and they're written as poetry. Right? You see, it's in the genre of biblical poetry. They're not always literal, but as poetry and as songs, they're always expressive. They're always expressing. They are songs that teach. Right? They're songs that teach. They're, they're songs that, uh, that teach us how to give thanks for what God has given us. They teach us how to give thanks to God. To who has given us so much? It teaches us to express praise and emotion and delight in the person and work of God. The Psalms have the priority of worship, and we will see that this morning. It has the priority of worship to the glory of God. They teach us to even look to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That the Psalms point us to Christ? And they teach us how to delight in the gospel by teaching us doctrine and worship and devotion. They teach us about sin. They teach us about suffering and pain. They teach us about injustice and justice and judgment. They teach us about hurt. They teach us about betrayal. They teach us about loss, joy, love. They teach us about joyful obedience. And does it all through all kinds of human emotion. We often turn to the Psalms in the reading of our gatherings. We started this, this morning in our gathering, reading from Psalm 8. We hear the Psalms in our song. Sometimes we even sing a song. We turn to them in prayer because they relate to us with all the highs and lows of following Christ faithfully in a fallen world. How many times and moments of desperation that you turned and grasped on to Psalm 23? 
Have you heard others do the same? Or are you found uh, uh, someone who was suffering in pain? They were going through something very difficult, and you, you led them to the shepherd of Psalm 23. All of this means, about the Psalms, all of this means primarily the Psalms expressively show us how to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes on the Lord. That we would look to him, that we would behold him, that we'd see him as our king and as our shepherd, as our redeemer and our refuge in righteousness. I think last year I quoted this to you all again and from the Psalms, and this is from James Hamilton's theological commentary in the Psalms, and I love how he puts it. He says, does any literature in the world compare to the book of Psalms? The Greeks have Homer, the Romans have Virgil, and the Italians have Dante, and the British have Shakespeare, but nothing sings like the Psalms. As Ronald B. Allen has written, only a Philistine could, love, could fail to love the Psalms. No other body of poetry lyricizes the epic deeds of the living God, celebrating the past, signifying the future, interpreting the present, making God known. No other body of poetry both claims to be the word of God and has the Holy Spirit bear witness to that claim, a claim recognized by the people of God across space and through time. No other body of poetry has its principal author, God's chosen king, whose line of descent traces back through Judah to Abraham and still further to Shem, Noah, and Adam. Nor can any other poetic literary tradition lay claim to the fact that King David, in writing all of his own experience with God in the world, simultaneously wrote as a type of the one to come, Jesus the world's best and only hope. We love the Psalms because we encounter God. And as Scott Hefman affirms, knowing God is not a means to something else. Isn't that such a great description of the Psalms? And the last line again, just, it's just so true. There's nothing greater than the Lord. And expressively, the, the Psalms are taking us right to God. Because we see him. So this summer, let us behold and beheld our God in the Psalms together. So let's look to Psalm chapter 9, and together we'll start in verse 1. To the choir master, according to Muth Leben, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount with all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you have rooted out, and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with 
uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will trust, will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sit enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my afflictions from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, and in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion Selah. And the wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inerrant, inspired word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. As the Psalms began... Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 start off and stand as the two pillars of the gate into the Psalter. And they introduce us to the great themes of the blessed king. And then grouped together is Psalm 3 through 9, because historically speaking, they seem to be dealing all with the same drama of the issues that David had with his son Absalom. Absalom... David's son rebelled against him and sought to kill his father. And as we see in the superscription of Psalm 9, that's the, the, little, the little capitalized um, words at the beginning of the psalm, this is a psalm of David. And it says, according to Muth Leben, which transliterated means death of the son. And the son, contextually, is Absalom. And that makes sense to us. And even though we know David mourns the death of his son, we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 18, we see simultaneously or with that in David's theological understanding in Psalm 9, he is celebrating God's justice over the wicked. Justice is something that the human heart longs for when we see injustice. It's innately built into us. And the reason why is because we are made in the image of God. We want justice when we see injustice. When we see criminal acts in society, we demand justice as much as man can. We want just judges who will be honest and who will be fair, who will see through lies and deceit to make things right according to the law. We want Judge judges to be blind and judge according to the facts of the, of the law, not based upon their opinion or the sways of culture. We want them even to be compassionate when necessary. And when a judge is anything less than that, we demand justice. 
think of this theme of justice and injustice as is pervasive even throughout pop, pop culture. How many movies start out with the line of just some normal guy who's trying to make ends meet in his home and, and he loves his family and he loves his country and he's honorable and upright and, uh, and then you know, the plot of the movie turns and somehow all of a sudden he's now been, he's been now set up by some powerful government agency or corruption for, to take the fall for, for their corruption. And then, and then throughout the movie you can feel you know, welling up inside of you that you want justice for this guy and you want the enemy to, to get theirs. And this longing of justice is deep within us. And it's a longing that ultimately speaks to the glory of God as we've been created in the image of God because he is a just ruler and just judge of the universe. And at the heart of Psalm 9, which is why Psalm 9 speaks or sings so loudly and powerfully to us today, God, is, God brings himself glory by ruling and judging the world and the wicked with his justice. This psalm is a song of praise, right? We started out as a song of praise. In fact, it's, the, it's one of the first major psalms of praise, of, of singing. So you put those two things together. What we learn mainly from, this, from Psalm 9 is here is that we can sing and praise the Lord not only because he is good and not only because he is provider and not only is because he is redeemer, but that we can sing and give praises to God because he is also just and a righteous judge. And when we see God's glory as judge over all the world, and even our own hearts, the exclamation of David here is, should be for us as well, is that we sing to him. Because in ultimately, ultimately, we, want, we understand that singing and understanding and delighting and glorifying God, glorifying God for his justice and being a just, righteous judge, we are glorifying God because, because we understand the price of our redemption. We understand the, the beauty of, of God's grace that he would save sinners like us. Who are we? Who are we to stand before him, but only covered by the grace of God? And so first, David shows us that we should... We should sing our praises and our pleas. And so just to let you know, with each point, each point I'm, 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 taking in the, I'm, uh, I'm bringing the text together chiastically, so it works together. A is down with the bottom. It'll make sense. Don't worry about it. Never mind. Forget it. Verses 1 and 2 in 19 and 20 will be my first point. Sing praises and your pleas to God. It says, I, I love the way this psalm starts out. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I mean, you can sing it, or you can sing it, and you can hear it. Like, this is a loud exclamation of singing to God and calling God's people to, to sing. I mean, look in these, just these first two verses, all of the verbs that are there. All of the verbs, give thanks, 
recount, be glad, exalt, sing praise. And all of these are working together in this chain to, uh, uh, to synonymously drive to one particular point that all praises belong to God. And the whole heart of our being is to sing and praise and adore and worship and desire Him. Praise God, rejoicing and singing to Him. And we see David here rejoicing and singing, celebrating of the epic tales of the Lord's salvation in this poetic form. Now again, in context, David is praising God for the deliverance that he experienced from his son Absalom, who was hunting him down to kill him. And Absalom was killed. It's, it's, it's in context of a real historical event. Brothers and sisters, our worship is not wishful thinking. Our praises to God, our singing to God, our glorifying and adoring to God are not wishful thinking, but our praises to God are grounded in the reality of His real salvation. This isn't fake what we do. The works of His hands experienced by our people, that is what our worship is grounded in. One of my favorite things that, that I get to do every week is leading you all in singing as the church together as one body. I love everything about it. I, I love the planning, the practicing, the learning, all of it. I love how challenging it is to me. And it's always been our goal as a church that we would be a congregation that sings. A congregation that not just sings, but sings loudly. That sings loud together. And not trying to sing loud because we're trying to overcome some accompaniment, but because you are the main voice. You are the main voice of encouragement. The main voice of encouragement in our singing is not my guitar or my guitar playing. It's not my voice. It's not a band or a piano. But the main voice of encouragement is the congregation that collectively sings together. And we sing songs that are, that are simple, but biblically rich and deep theologi the, uh, theologically. Songs that, that the oldest among us and even our youngest can sing. Songs that Calvin and Ezekiel pick up in singing. Songs that Mabry can pick up in singing. That's what we are doing, so that all are drawn into singing of these old hymns and new hymns. And over the years, we have really grown together in singing together. We've really grown together, and it's such a great joy to be a part of and, and to delight in. But we do not sing just because it's tradition, it's what the church does. But we sing fundamentally because we understand in Scripture that God's people are called and meant to sing the praises of God together. Music is powerful. Let there be no doubt, music is powerful. And we can use it to the glory of God, and we have, just as the world uses it and wields it to corrupt. It is powerful. And when we sing together, it is unifying. 
It's encouraging to hear a brother sing across the room or a sister sing across the room. It's encouraging. It's faith building. It's, it's spiritual. It's teaching. It's setting an example that we want our children to follow, to sing, to watch mommy and to watch daddy sing unto the Lord. And the Psalms are filled with with exhortations to sing, just like Psalm 9, but also in the the New Testament, the church is called to sing. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, when they were imprisoned in Philippi for preaching the gospel, right? We're just talking about justice and injustice, talking about injustice, preaching the gospel, they were in prison. And what did they do in jail? They sing. They sing, and, and probably were singing psalms. It says they were singing hymns, but maybe it was a psalm that they were singing. In Ephesians 5, we, we were taught how in the Christian life together as, as the church, we are, to, we are to sing. Verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms. So why do we need to have a clear mind? So that we can address one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, in singing, in making melody. Making melody. Hey, we need some more harmony in here. Sing some harmony, right? We need some more harmony in our songs. Making melody to the Lord with, our, with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Our singing together, brothers and sisters, is directed toward one another, and most importantly, it is with our hearts in which we are singing with. When I'm singing with my heart, you are hearing me sing with my heart. And same as with you. Our singing is not just some external duty or just some motion that we do to get through so that we can go home in our gathering. No, our singing starts in the heart, as Ephesians 5 says, out of thanksgiving for Christ. In a heart that has been humbled by the amazing grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ to forgive such a sinful and wicked people, how else? Can people sing together with such joy as us? How else can we sing as one body and make melody together? How else can we submit to one another, but because only out of the reverence for Jesus Christ, who has saved us from our sins by his grace alone? How could we do anything less than with great joy exclaim in singing together from the oldest to the youngest. Colossians 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. Brothers and sisters, our praise and our singing is public. Our singing is intellectual. It is intellectual. We, we think deeply in our songs. And our praise is emotional as well. We think deeply so that we can feel deeply. Because we have been changed and we have been made new and we, have been, and we continually receive grace upon grace. Now, in a minute, I'm going to answer the question, why is Psalm 9 a song of praise, especially when it's dealing with judgment and justice? But before we go there, look at verse 19. 
Because at the end, David, at the ends of the end of this song, he ends with a plea. And in his plea, he says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear. O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. And so with the praises of God, singing, David makes his plea to the Lord to rise up and judge the nations. Now this is not merely the celebrations of the kinds of things that God has already done in the past, but this is a plea that is looking toward a future, a time of God's future judgment. And it's looking forward to what the Lord has not only done in the past, but his plea of looking forward to the promised king, the promised king who will come from the Davidic line. Now listen, the historical pattern of deliverance celebrated in this, in this psalm points us forward to the end-time deliverance that God will accomplish for his people. And wrapping up in our singing, all wrapped up in our singing, brothers and sisters, is a hopeful expectation and the plea for our Savior Jesus Christ to come quickly. Even though we may not expressively be saying it in our music or it's written in that song, there's a lot of songs that we sing, like come to Jesus, we want him to come, we sing that in that song, but in all of our singing there is a hopeful expectation for the reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord Jesus comes again, he will bring with him the righteous judgment of God, as well as the righteous deliverance of his people. Without God's righteous judgment and deliverance, wicked people, wicked man, will prevail. But verse 19, David's plea for the Lord is to rise up and to let the nations be judged, to show them that they are only mere men. Again, we're going to talk about this in just, just a moment, but listen, the heart of man, the heart of man without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is wicked. There is none that are righteous, no, not one. There is none that do good. Certainly, there are things that we can do that are good, that are kind, that are helpful, that can be betterment to other people, but wrapped up in our hearts is a wickedness of a motivation that's wrapped around ourselves. And every bit of little sin that we have committed is a rebellious fist before a sovereign and holy God. Collectively, Man's wickedness is one that seeks to prevail over God. That's what it is, right? It's, it's trying to usurp and prevail over God, to overcome the, the truth of God, to usurp His authority, which is the, the very basis of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. We know what's better. We're going to eat what we want to eat. In in 1905, a long time ago, even before when Pastor Bill was born, in 1905, Harvard University built a new building, 
and it was called Emerson Hall. And this new building was going to be for the philosophy department. And the design of this building would include over the, the north facade, over the doorway, an inscription. And so the philosophy department, or the Department of Philosophy, decided, they decided together what this inscription should be, since it's going to be their building. And this is what they came up with. Man is the measure of all things. That is their, that's 1905. This is what they, they, they wanted to put up, right? And we think about the outcome of that philosophy and how that's plaguing us today, right? Now, this quote comes from the philosopher. Listen, this isn't new. This isn't, this isn't 20th century philosophy. This is way back in the day. I mean, way back in the day. The philosopher Protagoras from 490 to 420 B.C., he came before Socrates and Plato. So one of the earliest statements of relativism is right, relativism is right here. Man is the measure of all things. And in many ways, this absolutely summarizes man's wicked heart to reject God. And so the faculty they instructed the architects to, to carve this. This is what we want over the door. This is our philosophy, that man is in charge. We're the measure of all things. We decide. Now, when the president of the university, Charles William Eliot at the time, found out about the planned inscription, he quietly decided otherwise. And so when the, all the professors in the philosophy department was empty and they were gone for summer vacation, he had another quote put on, another inscription. And so when all the professors came back from summer vacation, expecting that they were going to walk in proudly as the measure of all things into this building that was meant for them, this is what they saw cut in the stone. What is man that thou art mindful of him? That's Psalm 8, verse 4. We read it this morning in the beginning of our, of our service. And by the way, that inscription still stands today on Emerson Hall as a witness to all generations of students. This real life, though a, though a minor illustration, yet still captures the heart of our whole rebellion against God. The human heart says it's all about me, that I am the measure of my own, of my own life and my own destiny and who I am. And that minor illustration shows that our, we rebel against God. The human heart says it's about me. That there's no one else above me. And yet David calls upon the Lord to do what? To humble us. To humble us with overwhelming power and glory. Look at verse 20. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but man or but men. You want to know how to be humbled? There's many ways to be humbled. But let your life flash before your eyes, and you will see that you are merely men. Man will not prevail before God will judge them. And just a quick application here. Do you know what singing again does for us? It humbles us. And singing together reminds us and humbles us that we are just men, and he is God. Behold him there the risen king. <laughs> Behold him there. 
And it reminds us that Jesus is coming and he will judge. And so we sing our praises and our pleas together to our God. And secondly, we sing... i got to take a drink first before I say this. This might be scandalous. We sing because he is just in his destruction. Whoa, what did you just say? Well, you heard me right. You talk about one of, one of our unpopular points. Maybe, maybe one of our savvy young people can start a meme that maybe we can jokingly pass it around us, you know, with a goofy picture of me. And, it's, and maybe it says, things only said at sovereign grace. Right? We sing because God is just in his destruction. Popular Christianity says that God's love is the same for all with no conditions, with no repentance, and with no faith. Just love. And that is a point that is not found in the scripture. Yes, we see that God is love and God sent his son to, to, to die because he loved but the motive is for the repentance of the sin of his people to follow him. So many would hear a statement that it's okay for us to sing because God is just and his destruction is just inconceivable. And Psalm 9 raises this question. Why then is the psalm of praise, the song about God's just justice, and the destruction of the wicked. I mean, it's throughout the psalm. Look at verses 3 through 6. David specifically answers the question. When my enemies turn back, right? Enemies, right? We're not, we're not talking about, he's not saying my friends. He's not talking about the people that like me, the people that tolerate me. No, it's my enemies. They stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities rooted out and the very memory of them has perished. I want us to understand this is not David reveling or boasting in the downfall of others. He is not the arrogant showboat athlete standing over his opponent laughing at him as he has fallen and taunting him. That is not the position that any Christian takes if we stand upon the foundation of Christ, which is the gospel that we've been saved by grace through faith. We do not revel in the destruction of the wicked or of the enemies, but however we are thankful and we can glorify God that he is the conqueror and that he is the just judge, not us. And so we can sing and we can praise God for his justice and his righteousness to judge the wicked. Again, the language, my enemies, harkens back to earlier language, Genesis chapter 3, those at enmity. Reminds us, right, of the, the, the woman and the serpent that God puts between the woman and the serpent and her seed in his is enmity, strife, sin, wickedness, those who are coming against him. 
Verses 3 and 4 tell us that the the Lord does what? He shows up and he defends David. And verse 5 and 6 tells us what he does. He rebuked the nation. He made the wicked perish. And he blotted their name out forever and ever. It's easy to see. It's easy to see around us today the open, open, blatant rebellion against the Lord in our world. And brothers, it's easy for us to, to forget that God will judge the wicked and that the wicked will perish and that their names will be blotted out forever. And now, today, the wicked may be loud, they may be proud, and they may hold sway over every earthly institution, but the Bible tells the truth that the quickest way to be forgotten, to have your names blotted out of everyone's memory, and to perish is to rebel against the Lord and His anointed Jesus Christ. And corresponding with this judgment on the wicked is their self-destruction in verse 15 through 18. Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. By the way, Hegeion means um, meditation, to meditate, to stop, meditate on this. Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol for which is an image of hell. All the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So not only will the enemies of God experience the judgment of God, but they also experience the futility of their own evil. They are examples of, of their own self-destruction. And as one of the commentators I, I read on this said, this world was not made as a place where the universe cooperates with evil deeds, nor was life created so that wicked people would find their way to some wicked man's paradise. Those who set traps for others will have themselves to thank when the traps snap shut on their own feet. Listen, with, within the providence of God, Within creation, the Lord still judges the wicked. God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. People will fall into the pits that they have dug themselves and face the consequences of their own sin. If you are digging pits for others to fall into, then don't be surprised that you fall into the very pit yourself. Sin carries its own punishments and consequences. Sin destroys. It never delivers on its promises. It never gives you what you want. It always promises you life and vitality and satisfaction and joy. But it never gives it to you. I mean, it may put it in front of you and say, this is what you want. But it quickly snatches it out and you fall right into that pit. Brothers and sisters, our world is caught in such a lie that they really think that this sexual revolution that's happening around us, this movement is going to end well for themselves. 
We're already seeing the consequences of it. And I don't just mean the eternal judgment of, of them, but I mean in this life, in this life as a culture, we're already seeing the, the destructive consequences of this evil ideology. When you push things off, the very foundation and the very building blocks by which God has created and said this is good, and you cast that away and say I am the determiner of my own life and my soul and my very body, then do not expect life, freedom, joy, or flourishing. It's not going to happen. They're always going to be miserable, and they want to drag everyone else into their misery. Right now, the moral bearing and foundation in the name of freedom and self-rule is everywhere. And yet mental illness, and I'm going to put that in quotes, is off the charts. Child and teen suicide is off the charts. Adult suicide is off the charts. Drug abuse. And addictions are at staggering levels. Crime is at all-time levels. Family brokenness is everywhere. And, and I'm not saying that they're all connected, but they're connected by this one thing, and that is sin. They're connected by sin. Man's rebellion to rebel against the truth of God. And the consequences all around us is a world that is raging and is in absolute misery. Suffering and pain and even death. When you dig the pit, when you dig the pit and you jump into the pit with your sin, then do not be surprised that your ankles break. Because they will. There are consequences to sin. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you this. You all know in your own lives the consequences of your sin. You, you bear the scars. You understand that you suffer the guilt and shame, maybe even on a, on a daily basis. But if you are in Christ, then listen to me this, then you know the gospel of the living grace of God. And that changes everything. But even in that, knowing the gospel, you still know how hard it is to overcome sin's effects. But here David is singing, because the Lord is just in his destruction of the wicked, despite some of the scars and the guilt. And so listen to me, what overcomes it all, what overcomes it all, sinner, sinner that needs Christ, listen to me, what overcomes us all is the singing of joyful hearts because of Christ. And this is what he has done. He has poured out his perfect justice by, by on his son, on the, cross, on the cross. All of his wrath, the wrath of God that was due toward sinners, was poured upon his son. He was that perfect, sinless substitute. He took your destruction, the destruction and the perishing that you deserve so that you could be forgiven and set free and made righteous. And what we're called to do is to believe it by faith and repent of our sins and come into the kingdom of God. And so brothers and sisters, as we, we see around us the devastation and the destruction of the wicked, we certainly do not envy them. 
but we pray for them. And we do so praying that they would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope, just like you and me. And so therefore, as David sings praises to God, to the Lord, to Yahweh, because he is just in his destruction of the wicked, so can we. And lastly, we sing, for he is our stronghold. Right there in the middle of the psalm is the the strong text of looking to the Lord. And it, and it stands in contrast to the wicked, doesn't it? The memory of the wicked, they're gone forever. And yet it's the Lord who sits on the throne forever. And his throne is established for what? For justice, to judge the world with righteousness. In verses 7 and 8, again... Here's bad news for the wicked, but for those who are being saved and and, and take refuge in him, this is gloriously good news. And corresponding with verses 7 and 8 is is verses 13 and 14. As, As David cries out for the gracious treatment which is linked by the Lord's righteousness being founded on the fact that he has established his faithfulness to his people by keeping his promises to them. So the very fact that that he is on his throne in righteousness, the very fact he's on his throne and he's ruling in righteousness means that he will always keep his promise to save those who take refuge in him. And so then at the center, I said this like looking at it chiastically, right there at the center of the structure in Psalm 9, in verses 9 through 12, where, where he says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, or you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Again, here is... Here's the command, right? The imperative. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cries of the afflicted. The Lord is our stronghold. For the oppressed, he is our stronghold. The Lord is not weak. He's not weak. He is not asleep. He is not inattentive at the wheel. He is strong. And as the the great hymn of Martin Luther sings, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Who is like the Lord? The Lord who, who, who helps those who offer him absolutely nothing. We offer him nothing. Those who cannot defend themselves or contribute to him in, in, in any way. And yet the Lord is our stronghold and is our refuge. Back in verse 3, David says, My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before your presence. The New Testament gives us sort of a fulfillment or a wonderful, glorious example of that. In John chapter 18, verse 6, 
when Jesus identifies himself to those who come to arrest him, they experience exactly what verse 3 says. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He is our stronghold. Jesus is just, and Jesus is the, the righteous judge. He is the one and only God, and at the cross, he began that work of the destroying the works of his enemies. Jesus is the great I am. He is our stronghold. He is your stronghold. He is your refuge. So run to him, and as David says, run to him singing and praising God. Because Jesus Christ is enthroned above and seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we sing to the Lord for a number of reasons. But here Psalm 9 wraps up all of our praises and our pleas to the Lord. That we can sing and rejoice that our Lord is just and in his righteous judgment and destruction will fall upon the wicked. Again, we don't take pleasure in that, but rather we are reminded of the holy character of our Heavenly Father. And that humbles us because of the grace that saved sinners such as ourselves. But also hear me on this, beloved. We sing and we come running to the refuge of our stronghold, who is the Lord. He is our refuge and in our, our safety in this life. And to those who know your name, put their trust in you. Or you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So church, sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion and tell among the peoples his deeds. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.